Amen. Psalm chapter 119, we're learning and we know that this entire chapter is about the power and the breadth and the beauty of the Word of God. The, inside of the longest book of Scripture, the book of Psalms, the longest chapters devoted to the Word of God itself. And as I began to process some of the things that were here, there was a passage of Scripture from the New Testament that came to mind to me as well. Late in his life, while he is in prison, probably the last book that he writes, the Apostle Paul writes to this young pastor by the name of Timothy. And one of the things he does is he encourages him to take the word that he has received, that Paul has preached, that Timothy has learned in the Word of God, and to deposit it in the lives of other people because the Word of God has this unique kind of power that all kinds of things just do not have. Paul wanted the power of the Word of God and the good news about Jesus Christ to have its effect among as many people as possible. Paul tells Timothy, I'm in prison, but the Word of God can never be imprisoned. I am enchained, but the Word of God is never in chains. And so we perpetuate the good news of the Word of God. And so I want to read part of that passage coming from 2 Timothy really quickly. The first couple of verses I don't think are on the screen, but in 2 Timothy 2, he says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. And then he says this in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Even in the midst of our affliction and confusion and difficulty, Paul wants to make sure that this pastor, this church, these followers of Jesus Christ recognize the kind of power and work that the word of God can have inside of his people's lives. So guys, chapters 119 of the book of Psalms is all about this stunning power of the Word of God. He devotes his entire psalm to how we should view the Word, treat the Word, treasure the Word of God, live out the Word of God. So in these two stanzas that we're going to read today, a couple of things stick out as themes in these two sections of Psalm 119. And the first is this, the Word of God is comfort in our affliction. The psalmist in this stanza and really throughout this chapter is going to speak often about thinking about or meditating upon or soaking inside of God's rules and the kind of hope that they bring to us. He will ask God to remember him. And in that request, the psalmist finds hope. And that, I think, is a beautiful moment. And then as we move on to the second stanza this morning that we're going to read, we learn that the Word of God guides me in the strengthening of my relationship with God. The Word of God actually draws me near to this God who has arranged relationship with His children. God is mine and I am His. What the psalmist says goes by so quickly, but I think it's important for us to pause and slow down and reflect on what the psalmist says at the beginning of that stanza, that God is mine and I am His. And as a result of that, I want that relationship to grow stronger and deeper. So what does it take for that to happen? 
The psalmist actually has, I think, some wonderful answers to that question for us this morning. So let's begin reading. In Psalm chapter 119, beginning in verse 49, it goes like this. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly, utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the nights, O Lord, and keep your law. The blessing, this blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. What beautiful stuff. Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is how the psalmist begins this stanza. In fact, this notion of remembering is actually how the psalmist book ends, the beginning and the end of this stanza. And he uses this word, remember. Remembering as a word, as a concept inside of Scripture, is really this beautiful and powerful thing. It is far more biblically than just to recall something to mind, to stick something back into our memories in its right place. It's not just remembering like that. It's remembering in the sense of recalling something and then acting appropriately. So we might be able in conversation to remember a simple little fact like who was the first president of the United States? Ah, George Washington. So we remember in the sense that we sort of file that fact away in our brains, we recall it, we put it in the right place, we, we sort of are in sync with what things really are, we just sort of remember and that's just all that it does. Or we can remember that we have an appointment this afternoon and so then because of that, we have to sort of rearrange our day. We have to prepare ourselves so that we can show up at the right place on time, prepared and ready to go. You see, we can remember something in the sense that it causes us to act appropriately. Now, that's the sense of remember that the psalmist and the prophets and the people of God constantly use with God. And to me, this is a beautiful portion of this prayer. It's maybe not a way in which we think about praying to God, but a way in which we should think about praying. To begin a prayer with, remember your word to your servant, O Lord. Because when we do that, what we're doing is we're asking God to draw us back into his mind and to then act toward us according to his nature. We're asking him to do something. We're asking him to be engaged and involved. He's going to act according to his nature toward us. Another passage in the Psalms that uses this concept, I think, to good effect, both in the sense of, God, this is how I want you to remember me, and God, please don't remember me this way. In Psalm chapter 25, verses 6 and 7, the psalmist says this, Remember your mercy, O Lord and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. I love that prayer. God, remember your mercy toward me. Remember me according to your steadfast love. And God, if I can just kind of throw this one in there, please don't remember me according to my sins. 
I know who I am and what I have done and what's brewing inside of this heart and mind that is dishonorable towards you, that's broken and that is sinful. And oh God, what I'm asking for is mercy instead of judgment. It's an entirely appropriate prayer to pray in our walk with God. Cleanse me of this sin. Draw me to you. And God, act toward me in your mercy and in your steadfast love. That's a beautiful prayer to pray. So we're beginning to see at the very beginning of the stanza that when God's Word is fulfilled inside of us or when God's Word is actually acted out inside of our lives, the psalmist says, this is the kind of thing that to me is hope. This is the kind of thing to me that is comfort. This is the kind of thing to me that is actually life itself. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. God's word to us is our hope. God's word to us is our hope. The psalmist reminds us, at a passage like this, as we pray with the psalmist, as we learn how to approach God in prayer and petition with the psalmist, he reminds us to take rest in and even to find joy in this fixed point in a turbulent and complicated and evil-ridden universe. In a world, friends, that swirls around us in ways that sometimes feel like they're going out of control, I don't know what to do, this is nothing but pain and confusion, this is nothing but injustice being perpetrated upon all kinds of people. When when the world does this, our hope in the Word of God is grabbing onto a fixed point in the universe. As I thought about this, it reminded me of a passage in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6. Verses in 18 and 19 is an interesting pair of verses, a train of thought, where the writer of Hebrews says, it's impossible for God to lie. God's nature is stable and secure, and you can rely upon it um, from here through all of eternity. And so then he says, so this then becomes, this hope becomes the anchor for my soul, that God never changes, and I can rely upon the nature and the character of God and who he is, it actually anchors my soul and becomes my hope. Guys, so hope on Jesus Christ, hope in God's word is our grasp on what is firm and what is true when we are assailed by what is temporary and false and broken. This is a part of why it is so important for the people of God to be familiar with, embedded in, rooted in the Word of God. Timothy Keller was a pastor in New York City for a long time. He wrote a lot of things. In my opinion, one of his better books is called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. So you're thinking, oh, here's optimistic, happy Phil bringing up fun stuff already. But he says this in a chapter on hope. He says, there's nothing more practical for sufferers than to have hope. There's nothing more practical for sufferers than to have hope. Again, it's not pie in the sky. It's not hoping for birds and rainbows to make everything fine. It's rooting ourselves in the unchangeable nature and character of God. 
is rooting ourselves in who God is as revealed in Scripture, a fixed point and anchor for our souls. It's incredibly practical. I love that. He goes on to say, human beings are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about the future. Here's, I think, a lot of the truth that is in that. Who do I really think will win in the end? Who do I think or what do I think genuinely has the keys to the destiny of the human race and of the universe? And that, the answer to that question in this heart is going to determine the kind of life that I'm going to be able to lead. Is this world nothing but the result of mindless, unguided processes that came from nowhere and lead absolutely nowhere and give me no reason for meaning and purpose? Is that what I believe about the universe? Then where am I going to place my hope? Do I believe somehow that the future belongs to the powerful? No matter how virtuous, no matter how vicious, if they are the most powerful, then they control the destiny of the human race. Is that what I believe? If so, then where is my hope? Or do I know that God is the creator and the sustainer of all things, the judge of the living of the dead, and the king of kings will reign with all power forevermore? We're hope-shaped creatures. And the Word of God gives me hope. And I love this interaction. I'm asking God to remember me, to act according to His nature toward me. And in that, I actually begin to find hope. So you see, spending time in God's Word helps provide me with the data that I need to know God, the truth that I need to know about Him, about His grace and about His power and about His glory and forgiveness. So God's Word to us is hope. God's Word is my comfort in affliction. It is my comfort. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, as he wrote about this passage of Scripture, he says this. He says, the worldly person clutches his wallet and says, this is my comfort. The squanderer points to his high spirits. This is a very 19th century way of saying the lazy person points to their nice attitude and shouts, this is my comfort. And the drunkard lifts his glass and sings, this is my comfort. However, the man whose hope comes from God feels the life-giving power of the word of the Lord, and he testifies, this is my comfort. Isn't this beautiful? Guys, what do I clutch that I think is going to give me comfort? There is something about what happens to the human person when we walk through confusion and complication, when we walk through difficult times, when our margins are broken down, where we have very little emotional or physiological or psychological energy to approach the world anymore, these interesting things begin to happen inside of the human soul. And one of them is this. We go hunting for comfort in all of these places, and often we grab the thing that is emotionally the easiest but in the long term does us no good whatsoever. And we clutch and we hold and we clutch and we hold and we're just grabbing for something. And it's quick and it's easy, but over time we have to keep grabbing it because it hasn't fulfilled us. It hasn't done what comfort's supposed to do for us. So we keep grabbing and we keep grabbing and we keep grabbing. The psalmist says, in this process of 
the Word of God having its work inside of me, of God remembering me and acting toward me according to His nature, it becomes my comfort in affliction. God becomes my comfort. So I was thinking through this, I thought, there are at least these three kinds of ways in which this actually happens to us. It is absolutely true to say that the Word of God and His presence and His work to us is our comfort and does what comfort is supposed to do for the human heart. But sometimes that can feel a little bit abstract. So I'm going to give you just kind of three things very quickly, ways in which the comfort of God actually comes. Now, certainly you will be able to add to some of this, but this is how it's happened in my experience personally and as a pastor. The first way in which the comfort of the Word of God comes is in this immediate inner sensation. We're in the Word of God, and there just comes this moment where there's a passage of Scripture that either we feel like we've never seen before, or maybe we've read it a dozen times before, but there is this moment where the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and our circumstance meet, and there's just this immediate moment where we have this inner sense of comfort and satisfaction that God is aware of things. God is speaking to me through His Word. God is still alive. God is still at work. God is going to take care of this. I'm going to be okay. But we have to be in the Word of God for that to actually happen. <laughs> we can't just oh, crack this thing open two or three times a year when we're at our lowest point and hope that that's going to happen. We have to have this process of being in the Word of God so that every now and then those moments will happen, an immediate sense of inner satisfaction with the Word of God. The second way in which this happens, I think, is the way that we don't always think about and the way in which we would rather it not happen. But this is probably the way it happens the most. And it is a long-term sense of the faithfulness of God and of the truth of His Word. This is part of the value of getting to know and talk to saints who are further down the path than you are, and to be able to have these conversations where they're going to say things like this to you, oh, God has been so good to me, God was so faithful, God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and God saw me through this season, and God provided in this way, and God showed up in this powerful way. You see, there is this long-term course of the journey of life in which as we begin to live it and reflect upon it, we see how God has been present and guiding and providing and how He has been powerful the entire way. And so, friends, we persevere, we endure in the Word of God, and we find this long-term faithfulness in the truth of who God is. And the third way in which I think this happens, in which we find the comfort of the Word of God, is inside of the family of God. Unique things can happen when we gather together as the body of Christ, as we worship together. As Scripture says, do not neglect the gathering together together, as is the habit of some. I don't want you to neglect that. It's important for us to be together, to stand next to somebody who can't sing a lick, but who loves it and encourages us that we sing together and we read the Word of God together. There's value in that. I'm going to let you in on a little pastoral secret. You know, so, we, so don't tell anybody, please. This is just between you and me. But this happens to me and to my pastor friends, and we'll chuckle about this sometimes. Often, 
At the end of a service, when we've gathered and we've gone through all of this and we've prayed and we've worshiped and you've heard the word of God and we've done all of that and you catch me in the foyer, you're going to sometimes say something like this, Pastor, when you said this, it meant so much to me. It's as if the Holy Spirit spoke to me. It's exactly what I needed to hear. And I'll nod my head and go, man, that's great. That's, that's just awesome. I'm so glad that worked out. And inside of my head, I'm thinking, I don't remember saying that at all. <laughs> wasn't in my notes. I don't even think it came out of my mouth. But do you see what happened? The Word of God had its way. And it had its way because we were together. It's not always what comes out of this mouth. It's what comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God is read. So guys, keep telling me that. And if you see me just sort of nodding and smiling, just think, maybe he didn't say that. <laughs> it was just the Word of God, the Holy Spirit. God's Word to us is hope. God's Word to us is comfort in our affliction. In God's Word, the psalmist says, gives me life. We've talked about this a lot, and we'll have a chance to talk about it as the psalm moves on. But how easy is it for us to understand that the the day-to-day -day grind, the day-to-day -day cycle, the day-to-day -day information overload and explosion, the perpetual drama of what happens around us, the drama of what happens even inside of our family and friendship circles just begins to suck the vibrancy and the life out of us. But we are designed to be filled with the life of God through the Word of God. Remember me. It's going to be hope. And it's going to be comfort in my affliction. In your word, your precepts, your testimonies, these are the things that are going to give me life. In the context of this kind of comfort, the psalmist says these, uh, says these uh, few interesting things in three verses in a row, verse 31, and, or excuse me, 51, 52, and 53. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. These two frustrating things, and in the middle, the psalmist says, but I take comfort in you, and I will not forget your law. So these two things on either side of that notion of comfort are good for us to think about for a moment. The insolent utterly deride me, or the arrogant utterly deride me, and then hot indignation seizes me with those who forsake your law. There are two things going on here. First of all, there really are those in this world who will be agitators of followers of Jesus Christ. It's just the way that it is. And then secondly, it is actually right for evil to bother us, to really actually bother us. Friends, through following Jesus Christ, <laughs> Though following Jesus Christ will cause at least some tension with this world, we are tethered to life in comfort. The arrogant are going to make life hard me when I follow you, he says. But I'm just not going to turn away from your law. I'm just not going to. I'm going to think of your rules from on old, and they're going to give me comfort. I've said this before from the pulpit, um, but because I believe it is so true, I'm going to say it again, and, and hopefully you guys will remember it when I say it again next time. Scripture teaches us that vice hates virtue. Vice hates virtue. When the human heart is bent 
upon ungodly things and an ungodly lifestyle. When a godly lifestyle or someone who is at least intending to live a godly lifestyle comes into that presence, there's just going to be tension. So the insolent, the arrogant, they will deride those who follow Jesus Christ. But he says, that doesn't matter to me because I'm going to remember the law of God, and that's where I find comfort, my hope, in my life. And then the second notion, friends, that evil should really bother us. It really is evil, and it really is destructive, and we can't just pass over that. Those who follow Jesus Christ will actually grow in their frustration with the things that bring harm to people in society. Actually grow in your frustration about those things. Because we're learning that the ways of God are good, and we're learning that forsaking the ways of God are bad, it's evil, it's pain, it's injustice, it's destructive. So we begin to actually develop God's attitude toward evil. And Scripture uses this language that maybe sometimes we're not always comfortable with, but Scripture uses it in the sense of this is how God sees evil, so here's now how I want the people of God to see evil. Here's just a very quick example of this kind of language that comes from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 8, even just the first couple of lines. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. So the development of this heart means that over time, I'm going to learn to love the things God loves. And guys, I'm going to learn to hate the things God hates. Because God hates these things that are sinful and destroy us, and He loves the things that are the way and the will of God. So this interesting interlude in the middle of this section is still, again, about where I find comfort and wisdom in life. And in verse 54, he continues, Your statutes have been my songs. In the house of my sojourning, I'm not here for long, but I'm going to sing about you, and I remember your name in the night, O Lord. So we sing, (laughs) we remember, and we keep God's precepts. Again, all of this is about what it means to keep God in our hearts and in our minds and in our decisions and our priorities and our lifestyle. It's all about remembering God's law and finding His comfort. And I like this. Your statutes have been my songs. I have sung about the law of God. Singing is a powerful thing. Worship is a powerful thing individually or together. There's just something about what music does inside of a human being. Music that's meaningful, or we recall it, we put these thoughts, we put theology, we put prayer to song, and we sing it together. And after we sing a song for a couple times, you can probably shut your eyes and remember the words because there's this emotional and cognitive connection that happens inside of music. If you don't believe me, when's the last time you heard a song that was important to you when you were in high school? And what happened to you? Ooh, (laughs) turn up the radio, you do whatever. Oh, man, I remember this song. And all of a sudden, it's bringing back, oh, I remember this, and I remember this, and I remember this. And so we sing about the law of God because every piece of us is involved in our connection to what God's law is and what it is like. So we sing together, and we bring these kinds of phrases and ideas and memories into ourselves and into our families. And so together, 
we remember. The psalmist says, I remember. Notice the bookend. We begin this petition by saying, remember your word to your servant, O Lord. Act accordingly toward me. And then we end the stanza by saying, so here's what I'm going to do. I will remember you. Not just draw you into mind, but I will then act accordingly. This is who God is. This is what he wants from me. So now I will begin to behave this way. And it is a blessed life. Verse 56, this blessing has fallen to me. Another translation puts it this way. This is how I spend my life in keeping your precepts. So it's a blessing to live this way, being remembered by God and remembering God through His Word and in our relationship with Him. Now, the second stanza we're going to read this morning digs into this notion of what it means to develop this relationship with God. So verse 57 goes like this. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all of my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. What a beautiful phrase. The Lord is my portion. It's not language that we use often. Depending on the translation that you read of Scripture, it's still not a phrase that you run across very often, but it very simply means this. The Lord is mine. The Lord is mine. Sometimes I run across these concepts and I don't know exactly how else to put that across. I just don't know if I'm going to be able to explain what I believe is uh, the power of what's happening in that. That the creator of all things and the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who spun the galaxies into existence and knows all of the stars by their names, has actually decided to arrange a situation where creatures like you and me can actually be in intimate relationship with him. That's stunning. That the psalmist is able to pray, and we're, we learn to pray, the Lord is my portion. And with the promise of this kind of relationship, it only makes sense for us to figure out how to get to know him better since he has opened this up for us. He's given us this opportunity. And so the psalmist in those first two or three verses says things like, so I will keep your words and I entreat your favor. May God be good to me according to his promise. Here's one of the things I think that happens when we seek relationship with God or, or, or sort of imagining what relationship with God is like. It is very easy to fall into the temptation of wanting that relationship on our terms. It's very easy to fall into the temptation of not correcting our expectations of what that relationship is supposed to look like. And so the Word of God actually becomes our roadmap to that relationship. Here is who he really is. 
Here is how God interacts with his children. Here's what God in his mercy and forgiveness gives. Here's what God in his glory and holiness is like. So the word of God revealing his nature to us becomes our roadmap for this relationship as we get to know him. Now, actually, this is commonsensical when it comes to our most uh, intimate and our closest relationships. So if you can imagine with me a relationship in a marriage where one individual has never taken time to get to know the other individual in that marriage, but has placed nothing but, you know, all of these expectations on the other person, has never gotten to know them, that's a one-sided relationship that's never going to go anywhere. It's not a friendship when you expect them to know everything about you, but you refuse to get to know anything about them. And yet, for some reason, it's easy for us to do this with God, to not to get to know Him, but to still place expectation upon Him. But the Word of God corrects that in us and teaches us what it means for us to get to know Him and to be in this relationship where He is my portion. So the psalmist actually helps us walk down this path just a little bit. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. And in verse 59, I like this. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. In fact, I am quick to do it. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. So the psalmist says this about building a relationship with God. It requires a certain degree of self-examination. To get to know who I am, when I think on my ways, what my life is like, what I actually do, what I actually say, what actually are my sets of priorities, I will turn myself toward your ways. I hasten to do it. You see, this is another temptation that's being fixed in our relationship with God. And the temptation is this, I'm already basically okay. I'm a pretty good guy. How could God be upset with this, right? Now, I know I make mistakes from time to time, and God's just going to kind of tweak me just a little bit here and there. But that's a mistaken relationship with God. Here's what the psalmist says. You see, instead of that approach, the psalmist takes self-reflection seriously. There's a psalm a little bit later on that uh, some of you may know the passage. Your brains may even be there in Psalm 139 at the very end. Verses 23 and 24, this is the prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. It's another way of saying when I think upon my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. Lead me in the way everlasting. This discipline of self-examination is important for us. First of all, we need to learn how to take God's precepts about my behavior seriously. What God actually says about gossip or lying or slander or hatred or anger, what God says about those things, I need to take seriously about how I ought to behave. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says about life in the kingdom of God and how different than it is in the way that I normally lead life. So I have to take that seriously. I also have to begin with the belief, okay, this this is going to rub some of us wrong, but I have to begin with the belief that there's plenty of stuff wrong with me. Now, that's important. 
because the belief I normally begin with is there's plenty of stuff wrong with that guy, <laughs> right? That person, there's so much wrong over there. They need to have a come-to-Jesus moment. I need to begin the self-reflection with this realization as the psalmist prays, see if there's any wicked or grievous way in me. Some of those things are obvious to me. I could rattle them off, I could tell you exactly what it is, and when I do it, some of those things are obvious. Some of them are not. And some of them take time and prayer and work. And God will begin to dig through the soil of our souls so we can start to uproot those things that dishonor God and bring dysfunction and pain inside of our lives and separate us from Him. Sometimes it just takes work. But the goal is exactly what the psalmist tells us. I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and I do not delay. My choices, my lifestyle needs to begin to change. So the developing of this relationship with God that He's made available to me, it takes this self-examination. It also takes courage and persistence sometimes. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. It's going to take this kind of work that no matter what I am told as a follower of Jesus Christ, I will continue to follow Him. It's just the case, and we know this, if you follow Jesus Christ for any length of time, other people and other situations are going to make it difficult to follow Him sometimes. But the psalmist says, I'm committed, and I see the goal, and I will not forget the law of God. He says, I will even rise all hours of the night if I have to, to pray to you, to remember your precepts and your commands. So it takes self-examination. It takes this courage and persistence. And then I just, I like how this thought shows up throughout Psalm 119. And again, this, this, this is interesting. This is just kind of a fill tangent. Every time I, I would tell people earlier on, and, and oftentimes they were professors or they were other you know, pastors and so forth, I'm going to preach through Psalm 119. The first response always was this, how on earth are you going to keep that from becoming repetitive? <laughs> because when you read through Psalm 119, if it's just part of your devotional, you go through it, you say, oh, Lord, do this, I'll do this, laws, testimonies, precepts. Okay, I think I got it. But when you slow down and you pay attention to what's going on, there are just beautiful things that percolate to the surface that maybe we would forget or just not pay attention to if we're just sort of skimming through it. And this is one of those thoughts. It shows up in surprising ways. Verse 63, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. This relationship with God actually takes the family of God. And it takes a healthy family of God. This phrase, I am a companion of all who fear you, a couple of other translations put it this way, I am a friend of all who belong to Christ. The church of Jesus Christ needs this perspective more and more and more that we are spiritual friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, to anyone who follows our Lord. We are not perfect people. We will make mistakes with each other, and we will need to work some of those things out, but we need each other. Even more, as the day approaches, we need each other. 
Scripture teaches us that unity is a blessing from the very presence of God Himself. But sowing seeds of gossip and slander and discord among brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, is the tool of the enemy himself. Listen to what Psalm 119, excuse me, Psalm 133 says about unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. I am a friend to those who belong to Jesus Christ. That kind of unity carries with it the very blessing of God. And sometimes, friends, we have to fight for that unity. We have to fight for those kinds of spiritual friendships and relationships. There's power in those things. Back in that book, 2 Timothy, as Paul is writing to this young pastor, he's closing up, again, probably the last book that the Apostle Paul writes. The last thing he thinks about are the group of people who are close to him. He says, I want to make sure that you say hello to this friend and this friend and this friend. Come to me as soon as you can. I need you here physically with me. You see, there's power in these kinds of relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. At the end of the stanza, it goes like this. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. The bookends of this passage, again, I think are very telling. God is my portion, and the steadfast love of God is everywhere. God has opened up the possibility for this profound relationship that His creatures can have with Him, and it just turns out that God is everywhere. I love that thought. So He's provided for this relationship for us. But he's also made himself available everywhere. The earth, O oh Lord, is full of your steadfast love. He's made himself available at all times, and he's made himself available through every situation. Friends, let's continue to avail ourselves of this relationship with God through his word, our comfort in our affliction, and the deepening and strengthening of the kind of relationship that we can have with this God. Let's pray.